Hey, hey, here I am. Oh, thank you. Sorry. Against our, no, 1B. Against our attempts at morality. And then against our attempts at religion. Would be C. And then against all mankind, Jew and Greek alike. Point two under what? One D. Um, keeping and breaking. Law keeping does not atone for or excuse law breaking. Excuse. Excuse. So, if if you want to read something spicy, Calvin's voluminous. Calvin, because he's an exegete. His commentaries will always be useful. They'll always be helpful. Luther was far more polemical, but the bondage of the will is just fun. It's he is a loud hothead. He is hysterical at times. He he. One of the things that infuriated Rome. So when Luther's writing, the academic discussions are done in Latin, which of course means everyday folk can't really engage. So one of the things Luther does is he writes in German, and he writes in colorful, uh, colloquial, spicy. So everyday folks are reading and I'm sure giggling and laughing as Luther is being, I mean, it's it's also his weakness. The guy could be pompous, no doubt. But watching him be pompous towards Erasmus is just, I'm, I'm giggling at some of these things. I had so many more quotes, but I didn't have time. He's just, it's, it's. It's not dry. I'll put it that way. Um, it's not dry reading. Um, okay. Any, uh, any, any questions or thoughts from you guys about what we tried to cover this morning? Um, if we don't, I'd like to go further into Chapter 4, but I'll open it up for questions first. What, microphone? Do we got a mic in here? Do we? Oh, right there. Don's going to mic himself. Like Napoleon. He crowned himself, right? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, come on. A little history here. Is it on? There's a button. Is it on? Push up. They can see it. Okay. I think we're, I think we're on now. Huh? <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. Recently, in uh, in Spades today, I was reminded uh, of that God Christ's sacrifice for us didn't just put us at neutral. Uh, didn't just uh, so we broke even. Uh, right. Didn't put us in the middle of the gauge. It broke the pega on the on the other side. Uh, that it. Uh, just the, it wasn't just mercy; it was God's grace as, as well. Yeah. To use, to use a financial picture, it's not just that the massive debt we had was wiped out; mm-hmm. we then inherited riches. <laughs> it's not just the guilt of our sin was covered, but we receive His righteousness. The the for Luther, the real paradigm shift was understanding the righteousness of God to be something God would give. Mm-hmm. as opposed to the way Rome was reading it, God's just dealings. God does what's right. So, when, so for Luther, the big paradigm shift was 
the righteousness of God. God can be just and justifier. Mm-hmm. And so we don't just have our guilt removed. We receive Christ's righteousness. Um, it's Jay Adams' book, More Than Redemption. Same idea. Amen. Anybody else? Nothing? Greg, in the back. We need a microphone, Greg. Look, the five people who listen to the podcast regularly tell me they appreciate me being persistent on this point. All right. I'm not sure it's working, but I'll just speak really loud anyway. There you go. (laughs) Um, Could you... you Address more of, of how this text informs your evangelism? Uh, I, I, think, I think Romans really 118 to 320 is incredibly important and foundational in how I'm going to view natural man. And so if, if it's to be believed, then when you encounter somebody who says they don't believe in God, that's not quite true, right? Now, if you've been suppressing the truth for decades, you may have convinced yourself. I don't think everyone is in... in I think our, our propensity for self-deceit is huge. Um, and so it's not to say to the person who says, I don't believe in God, yes, you do. But I know, deep down inside, they know. Um, I know deep down inside they know morality. I know deep down inside... So in a sense, Paul is declaring there, there is uh, in general revelation, which... And, and this point's important. General revelation is not what can be known. It's what every man does know. And the three things Paul says everyone knows is there is a creator God with some measure of glory, some measure of power. Everyone knows about judgment because they judge each other. And everyone knows about ethics or morality because they have a conscience that condemns or acquits them. And so when I'm evangelizing, I would take into account those three things. This person deep down inside knows and sees the evidence of God. He may be well trained at denying that. This person knows about judgment intuitively. It's why according to Hebrews 2, we, we fear death. We know judgment's coming because we all judge. And three, we know right and wrong. As much as people want to argue about ethics or, you know, ethics. R- There's a great R.C. Sproul quote. R.C. Sproul's at a conference and this guy stands up and says, how do I convince my brother that ethics are real and not culturally defined? And R.C. goes, steal his wallet. <laughs> and, and the point is, when someone gets wronged, all of the highfalutin, well, that's just a social construct, punch him in the face. You know, not that you should do that, but when something like that happens, like, oh, okay. Um, so, so that would be part of it, because the challenge is you meet people who what they want to present themselves is, no, I'm not suppressing the truth. I don't believe in God because I've failed to see sufficient evidence. And I'm neutral. I don't have a bias. If I was shown clear evidence, I would believe. And so really, you're going to come at those people very differently. Not that we shouldn't be gentle, but if I really do believe the person when they say, no, 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 if, if you could just give me evidence for God in the Bible, I would believe. I'm going to make a very different appeal, and I'm going to reason with them very differently than if I take seriously what God says. They know perfectly well. I'm the, you know, they, and that you've got, it's, it's sort of like you've got an inside man. Their conscience and their innate knowledge of God and their fear of judgment and death coming are all we know in place. So you're speaking to them, hoping to get some resonance there. 
Um, I, so practically, this is one of the reasons why evidential apologetics, I am, there, there's fun. It's, it's, it's not a bad thing, but I don't think it's going to accomplish much because evidential apologetics assumes the neutrality of the person. And Romans 1 makes it clear they're not neutral. They're looking for truth like the thieves are looking for the police. You know, um, they're not neutral. So that's probably the biggest thing is Romans 1 insisting natural man is not neutral when it comes to truth. And would you say that this is integral to evangelism? Like if the person A does not come to this, then they won't fully receive or understand or... No, I don't think it's integral. By the very, I think it's helpful. It's interesting. Paul is writing to people who are Christians, explaining the gospel to them. So on the one hand, he's evidencing, I'm not sure you've put all this together, yet he's speaking to them as brothers. So I would certainly want to say, people don't need to have all this stuff figured out to be Christians. Paul's writing to them as Christians, but wanting to make sure, but also by putting it first, this is important. This is, this is critical stuff. So I, I think people could have all sorts of confused understandings of things, um, and, and God could draw them to faith. I think there's some things they need to have clarity on, but that doesn't then mean we don't immediately try to clarify what, those, what they're believing. You know, you know what I'm saying? So on the one hand, the priority Paul places on it, really important. The fact that he's writing to Christians, he's not assuming knows this or has put this together, would not make it like, if you don't know this, you're not saved. But I do think you're going to evangelize differently. If, you think, if I think my job in evangelism is to make a credible argument, I'm going to come at it a lot differently than if I think my job in evangelism is to lovingly call you to deal honestly with what you already know. Um, and, that's, and I don't want to preference one technique over another, but generally when I witness to somebody, my, what I'm thinking to myself is, let's see if you can be honest about the things we both know you know. And if you can then I got some great news for you. But I'm going to s- stick in the neighborhood of the things we both know you know um, and see if you can be honest about those things. And if you can't be honest about the things that you already know, there's not much point in telling you some new things you don't know. Um, it's, it's th- that, but that's my preferred... I like... I really like Romans... You know this because you know me. Which is why I'm asking this. I really do a lot of my evangelism from the arguments of Romans 1, 2, and 3. There are other passages. So it's not like that's the way to do it. But yeah, I, I'll oftentimes when I evangelize say, can I, can I tell you what God says you already know? I'm not going to do it quarrelsomely, but God says you already know this, you know this, and you know this. I believe God. You want to chat? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and yeah, Don. Just that... We've all heard, I think, that you have to have the good news to to hear the bad news or the good news. You know, yeah. The, the the bad news is what makes grace so amazing. Yeah. If you don't, you know, if, if grace isn't amazing, then you you don't I haven't heard the bad news. Right. I think Luther said if he had an hour to share the gospel with someone, he spent forty five or fifteen minutes on sin and the law. And ratio-wise, and what we looked at this morning, that's where Paul spends his... I mean, mm-hmm. you're going to flee with joy without needing a whole lot of persuasion to the cross and to Christ if you understand the problem. Um, I mean, Paul really just spends, what, a paragraph or two on it. And then he, most of chapter 4 is defending it in argument with the example of Abraham and the example of David. And then he moves on into 5 to uh, living in light of it. Mm-hmm. Like, 
really Paul's atonement and cross language is in two paragraphs at the end of three. That's, that's it. Because he's, once he's really laid a foundation of guilt and, and wrath, it's self-evident why you want this good news. You know, he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to uh, reason people into it. Once he's shut every door of escape. Anything else? Okay. Did my point about uh, natural unreached peoples make sense? Let me, let me try to unpack that a little further. Um, on the one hand, the good news is, oh, go to Romans 2. We'll go to the, go to the, um, the section I'm talking about here. And people ask, what about innocent people? What about innocent people who've never heard? And again, R.C. Sproul. Oh, they go straight to heaven. If there are any innocent people, they go straight to heaven. I, I challenge your premise, right? I mean, we've got to make that point clear. I think that's what Paul's saying in chapter 2 in this section. I know there's some dispute over this, but I, I don't think he's doing much more than in verses 6 through 11, making it clear. No, no, no. God plays fair. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. To those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress of every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. Now we know in chapter 3 we're going to say there's no one who does good, no, not even one. But hypothetically speaking, this is not rigged against you. God is absolutely just, righteous, and fair. And if there are innocent, good people anywhere on the cosmos, they're going to be just fine. However, all the people we've met (laughs) and encountered, and everyone Paul's speaking of here, so if you think of someone who the gospel has never reached, and again, this gets back, part, part of this is in our embarrassment of the wrath of God, and yes, I know there, there can be a perverse delight in God's wrath that we ought not, and maybe, you've, maybe sometimes you think of like the, uh, what's the Baptist church that's always picketing people? Westboro? They, they seem to have, some of them seem to have a perverse, like, yeah, glee in God's wrath. Yes, let's not do that. But I think we can be embarrassed of it. And so what I frequently see, it's nowhere, this argument's nowhere made in the Bible, but Christians treat hell as if it's only okay that there's hell because God sent Jesus. And it's a subtle shift. What it's saying is it's okay that God's going to punish sin because he gave a way of escape. That's not the biblical assumption. Biblical assumption, before we get to 321, is we all deserve wrath. And if God sent no Savior, he would have done nothing wrong. I mean, we've got to look that in the face. We have got to look that in the face. And not cop out... What we, what we basically, in essence, saying frequently is, I know hell is a little uncomfortable, but once you see God sent his son, the two balance each other. No, you're, it is hard, and we, we see dimly, but Paul's summary statement that every tongue is silenced. There is no excuse. There are no nice, innocent people. And getting back to your evangelism, it, no, it's challenging. We had this nice lady from our neighborhood stopped over, and um, she's part of a different religion. And she's really nice, and she made some cookies for my kids, and I'd like people who make things for my kids. And so the challenge for me is, well, I, who will I believe she is, what she needs, and where she's at? Because um, 
God's testimony on her and how she's presenting herself and how I'm tempted to view her different, you know? And so I have to constantly recheck. Not that this gives me any right to talk down to or be rude to, um, but people really want to present themselves as neutral, as meaning well, as open to reason, as trying to look for truth. And that's not, God doesn't agree. God doesn't agree. And so in um, 12 to 16, we get what happens to unreached tribes, right? I mean, so on the one hand, it's good news. For all who've sinned without the law, will perish without the law. But everyone's perishing, but those without the law don't get perished under the law. God's not going to go to people who've never heard of the scriptures and be like, why did you break my Sabbath? They, they didn't get the law, right? Um, they're going to perish without the law. They're still, everyone's still perishing. Nobody's getting justified, but they're not being condemned by Moses if they didn't receive Moses, okay? For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, which is, I think, to say they're their own standard. The Jews have a standard, and it's the law of Moses, and they recognize that. And so it's fitting and righteous of God to judge them by the law of Moses. The Gentiles who don't have the law become a law to themselves, a standard to themselves. God will only hold you accountable for what you know. But what we find out in Romans is you know enough to condemn you ten ways to Sunday. So you, no one's held accountable for what they didn't know. And that's not going to help anybody get off the hook. But it does show God is fair and righteous. And he deals righteously and fairly. So he goes on to say, they show the work of the laws written on their hearts, while their consciences also bear witness their conflicting thoughts, accuse or excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So what happens to an unreached people group in Papua New Guinea? God will judge them for what they know. And what they know is there is a creator God. He's glorious. They ought to be thankful and honor him. What they know is there is right and wrong. There is a way they ought to behave. And what they know is that breaking that brings judgment. And that's going to be enough to condemn every single person. If you don't believe that, if you believe in the wider mercies of God, then the worst thing you could do is evangelize or send missionaries out because they're safe until that unreached people group is safe until, oh, darn it, somebody showed up with the gospel. But, no, but I'll hear people say things. The only sin that can't be forgiven is rejecting Jesus. God judges people by their works. Look at 2.6. I'll get to you in a second, Greg. Look at 2.6. You don't get judged and sent to hell for not believing in Jesus. You get judged for your works, plural. Revelation, Revelation makes the exact same point. The book of Romans 2.6. The books of the dead were opened. Each one was judged according to what they did. There are deeds, actions. And the sin of rejecting Jesus is one of them. But, I, and I think it's primarily Christians who are embarrassed or confused about the doctrine of hell and wrath want to turn it into, there's only one sin, and it's rejecting Jesus. And, you know, um, no, that's not the biblical presentation. Rejecting Jesus is certainly a sin. It's an affront. It's not the basis for wrath. It just adds more on. The basis is the inward rebellion, the inward I'm going to pretend you're not there because I want to do what I want to do. Greg. A comment and then um, a question out of left field. Yeah. 
First comment is, I think that it's really important that, that we, you know, we look to the Bible to inform, you know, our reality about who the, who people are, because I know I'm tempted when I'm in the workplace and I'm working with someone and they're so kind and, and so gracious and, and, and so helpful that, that I begin to soften my view of who they really are. And I think, Oh, this is such a nice and kind person. Like, you know, uh, and, 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 and I, and I lose my, my sense of evangelism, my sense of who they really are and what they need most and say, man, they're, they're doing really well, you know? And, and so I think that it's good to remind ourselves that, you know, what's really going on behind the scenes in their heart is, is not, they're doing really well, so they deserve heaven, but they're, you know, they're living out their worldview, but what they need most is conformity to Christ, they need to repent and to to believe Him. So I think that it's good to 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 look at things squarely in the way that that God does. My left field question, um, re- pertinent to where we just were in in Romans two and Revelation two, is what do you make of? We believe in the sanctity of of life, and we yeah. believe in the personhood of 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 um, unborn babies. What do you make of a child who's, you know, no fair fair question, lost in the womb, uh, and. The short, the sh- my short answer is I don't know. Let me explain what I mean. Um, and I'm trying to set parameters. So when you're dealing with a child um, who dies in the womb, you're dealing with someone who, let's go to Romans 5. The fact that the child can die proves they're guilty of sin. So it, whatever the answer is, it can't be I'll start with this boundary, and we'll go to the other boundary. I'll try to hedge uh, two, uh, two guardrails from two ditches. The first ditch is we must not argue on justice. They're innocent. They're sinless. Um, if that's the case, two things would follow. One, they would be immortal and unkillable. Two, they would need no redeemer, and heaven would be full of people not praising a lamb that was slain who deserve to be there because they're sinless. They're innocent. But you don't thank... We, Paul makes this clear in Romans. You don't thank people for paychecks. They owe them to you. So in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into through the, through the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death only spreads to those guilty of sin. And I'm not going to argue original sin here. I believe it, that in Adam we're all counted as guilty, and the proof that we're all guilty is we can die. So your, your family, my family, we've both had miscarriages. I'm sure others have too. The first thing I've got to conclude is, is these, these children are mortal. They're, they're in Adam. They're guilty of sin, which means conceptually God could justly damn them. Now, let me quickly bounce over to the other edge. Even though I grant conceptually God could damn someone for Adam's sin, I never see him do that. It's deeds. It's deeds in Romans 2, 5, and it's deeds in Revelation. Now, to my knowledge, children in the womb have a limited capacity for deeds. I mean, John the Baptist is able to rejoice and leap for joy, right? But let's just talk about, like, how old is the baby in Allison's womb? Eight Eight weeks. I mean... Three days are they capable of deeds? I don't know. And so because I only know of a judgment by deeds, I don't know how to plug two-week-old zygotes into that judgment schema. If God does damn and judge those infants, I don't know how he does it. The judgment he's revealed to me doesn't work for them. On the other hand, 
I only know of salvation by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And just as John the Baptist in the womb had faith and was filled with the Holy Spirit, I still have very little, I don't know when that's possible, how it shall, again, we're talking, we're talking about a three-day-old zygote. Are they able to believe? So I don't know of any schema of salvation that I can plug them into neatly. So I conclude God has not shown me clearly how he deals with unborn infants. That, that's where I land. Because the way he says, here's how I judge, doesn't seem to work. And here's how I save, doesn't seem to work. And then when you add on top of that, there are plenty of passages that hint and point at the notion that children in the womb that die are saved. I'll give you some of the pointers. Now, my old pastor, John MacArthur, looks at the same evidence, thinks it's conclusive. I fall short of that. It's simply a matter of weighing the evidence. Job wishes he were a miscarriage. Um, you've got the uh, Jesus and the children, but, that's, but those kids have deeds. It's, it's a lot easier for me to think that my twins, who've got plenty of sinful deeds, like I can plug them into a schema now. You know what I mean? I hope God's merciful, but I, I, I got a schema that works for them. Um, but go to, uh, go to um, Jonah. Probably one of my favorite lines here. Um, when God rebukes Jonah at the end, he makes the little tree grow. Um, you, you guys know that song, um, I Asked the Lord? The original lyrics by John Newton that Daniel keeps trying to sneak back in, um, you see in all the songbooks, is Blasted My Gourds. Well, it's a reference to Jonah, right? Jonah is angry. He doesn't get the shock and awe fire show of the destruction of Nineveh. And so the Lord causes a big gourd plant to come up and give him some shade. And then he appoints a worm to eat the gourd and kills it. And Jonah, I just want to die. You know. And God says to him in verse 9 of chapter 4 of Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes. Sorry, I'm putting the petulance in. Sorry. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant. For which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I have pity on Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their left hand from their right, and also much cattle? That's suggestive to me. Um, I don't know if it's conclusive, but it's suggestive. Because there are times where God's demanded total war, like against the Amalekites. You kill their women, their children, the adults, their animals, everything. So God can righteously just strike down the whole people. You know. But here, Jonah, you, you pity this plant. You didn't make the plant. There are like 120,000 babies and kids in there and much cattle. Think of the cattle, Jonah. Think of the cattle. You know, but it's suggestive to me. It, it points, right? Um, you get David weeping over uh, the difference. David sure seems to think a different fate awaits the child who died uh, as judgment from his sin than he does for Absalom. When the child born to, we, the unnamed child born to Bathsheba, because Nathan says, because of your sin, this child's going to die. And Nathan leaves, and the child is struck. And for like three days, David doesn't eat, doesn't wash. He just pleads for the child, and the child dies. He's so tore up, his servants are afraid to tell him, for afraid, I fear he's going to harm himself. And, and 
David intuits what's gone on as the child died. And he goes and he cleanses himself and he worships the Lord. And he says, I cannot go to him. I mean, he cannot come to me, but I'll go to him, which could simply mean to the realm of the dead. But compare that calm and that um, acceptance with his weeping for Absalom, whom he knows darn well is a rebel against God, the Lord's anointed, and, and suffering judgment. Suggestive, again. So I think there's plenty of reason to hope and to think, perhaps, but I can't tell you how it works, and I can't personally can't get dogmatic on it but don can hit it don <laughs> no i can't okay but the question the, the the problem i have with with that is that god god says he will give to the, his children eternal life yeah okay so is is that child for myself in in, in one sense I was saved before I was saved. I was saved before I was born. He called me before the foundation of the world. You uh, were... Okay, what do you mean by saved? Uh, I, <laughs> that I was... Uh, uh, Paul says we all were formerly children of wrath. Paul came into this world with wrath over him. I, I would reject... I don't know if you're saying it. As much as I'm an eight-point Calvinist... 12-point, 15-point Calvinist. The justification is not applied. Wrath is not removed until we exercise faith. Okay. Um, so your salvation was certain, secure, foreknown. It was not accomplished. God's anger abided over you until you believed. Okay. That's, that's no? You with me or not? Uh, so far. Okay. So in that sense, you weren't saved. I, I sometimes hear people talk about it who are big... And I, like I said, I'm a big Calvinist. But as if the elect have never had wrath over them ever. They come into this world at peace with God. And no. No, I'm not saying that. No, no. Okay. Okay. I say in one sense, I was, but in many other senses, uh, it happened after when I did uh, agree with God. Yeah. uh, So. But uh, no, um, I think it's a result of infant baptism. Cause well, I, that uh, if, if I have, if that child in the womb has eternal life, at what point then does it lose it? Does it? That's that's why I want to be that's why I want to be very careful with trying to fill it out because I'll hear people talk about an age of accountability and right. like maybe, but like you're telling me there's a day where this child has eternal life, then it loses. It. I'm, right. I'm much more willing to be like, I don't know. The judge of the world would do right. Mm-hmm. Yes. He, and we can trust him. Uh-huh. And there's, and I don't know what he does and how he does it. Cause the way he's told me he judges, I can't plug an unborn child into But the way he saves, I can't plug an unborn child into. So the judge of the world would do right. I'm way more comfortable being there than start, Amen. than start trying to spell it out. And mm-hmm. you, you will see. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will be, when I find out what happened, we, we name, so we can pray for our kids. We give them womb names. And so the last miscarriage we had was Wooster. Um, <laughs> that's the last. When I find out what the Lord has done with Wooster, I will be satisfied. Mm-hmm. I have to believe that. So, um, yes. One, one, I think one of the glories of heaven will be that when we get there, we aren't really going to have ans- uh, our questions answers. Or we're going to say, you know, 
if I'd have known what you know and if I was as good as you are, I'd have done the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, five minutes. Any other? Yes, Mr. Walter. Microphone is moving. So on the subject of I don't know, yeah. on Second Timothy 2.19 where it talks about um, God knows those who are his. Yes. Uh, am I correct in finding some comfort there for I had a cousin pass away and we've had conversations and in the end I don't know if he ever trusted in Christ or not Mm. and is there comfort there just to trust that either he did or didn't know or didn't come to Christ, and based on whether he did or did not, that's where he'll end up. What's the passage for First Timothy two six? I think it's Second Timothy two nineteen. Two nineteen. Okay, hold on. It's one of the trustworthy statements, right? And let everyone who. Okay. Yeah, and I see some correlation to what Greg is saying and what you're saying is, I mean, I, I, I don't know what happens with that baby in the womb, right. whether, whether they can have faith or they don't have faith. I just don't know. Right. When you're dealing with people in time and space, it's harder, though. I mean, my, my wife worries what thinks about one of her unbelieving relatives who died. Do you think maybe in the shower as he was dying, he repented? It's conceptually possible, certainly. Um, God will be good and do what's just and right, and when you discern, when you learn what's happened, you will amen. But that does mean, and this is the hard thing, the other thing we got to, let's now move to family members who died, who we know died in unbelief. I mean, let's just imagine somebody cursing God as their, the last words out of their mouth is, Christ be cursed. As much as we may love them, we don't have more love than God. We don't have more compassion than God. The terrifying thing is as we behold God's glory, our loyalties will so swing that for all of eternity, we won't be feeling bad for them. For all of eternity, we will be rejoicing in God for being just. That's the scary thing. We don't see that now, but when we wrestle with believing God is good, um, I mean, I, it's, it's helpful, I think, just sometimes speak frankly, because I was talking to someone struggling with this. I'm like, so are you tempted to think you're more merciful than God? Wouldn't it be better, is what you're saying, if God saved more people? No, no, let's put it on the table. Let's be honest about it. And, then, yeah. and I think it's helpful to put words to it and say, yeah, yeah, that is what I'm struggling with thinking. Like, okay, great. Now we've got a problem we can address. But, but we will be satisfied when we see what has happened, and we will not be pining for those in in judgment, um, they will not hold heaven captive through blackmail. You know, go, Don. I think uh, also I, I believe just as there are degrees of reward yeah. in heaven, yes. there are degrees of punishment in yes. hell. Oh and, yeah, and again, God is more merciful, uh, more just, more righteous, more. Yeah knowledgeable than I and 
yeah. each person will get the, the reward that they deserve, whether that's a positive or a negative. Yeah. Uh, no, 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 absolutely. The, God is just and righteous. And when we view what he has done, we will be in awe and wonder and praise, not going. <sighs> but what about Just, my. What about. Right, right, person. right. Which is hard to believe, but every time people get a glimpse of the holiness of God, that's their response. It's not these poor people, but like, woe unto me, for I'm undone a sinner. Right, right. Just Bring us home, Zeb. Well, on that note, um, Revelation 6 is a pretty um, sobering passage um, for those who are tempted to think, oh, well, I'm, I've got a higher moral standard than God, because you've got the, the saints, um, starting in verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Then they cried out with a loud voice. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long because before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were they were not told. Then oh hey you need you're you're mean mean you need to be you need to settle down. They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer, mm. a little yeah. longer. Yeah, it's yeah. like it's coming, oh, and yeah. they're not, these are the the sanctified, perfected saints in heaven. Begging God, kill the earth. Yeah. Not that bad person over there. The earth. All of them. Yeah. Wipe them all out. And yeah. they're, not, they're not reprimanded. They're told to just be patient. It's right. coming. But because Jesus is going to come and war with the whole earth. I mean, so like we, by the end of the book, you see what they've asked for happen. Um, right. No, it's... Uh, we've we got to be careful of the risk of trying to make ourselves more compassionate than God, more merciful than God. Or if that is what we're struggling with, putting into words being honest about it and like, okay, then let's have that conversation. Um, okay, you know, Greg's apparently going to bring us home. Okay, Greg. In Bye. 30 seconds, can you tell us why the Jews didn't see from the Old Testament? <laughs> yep, yep. Romans 11. No Romans, no, Romans 11. I'll give you the short, simple answer, Paul, in Romans 11. I mean, it's complicated, and I can't give you the complicated answer, but I can give you one. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul is dealing with the question, what about the Jews? And specifically, he ends 8 with nothing can separate you from the love of God and Jesus Christ. And he's, I think, anticipating an objection that goes something like, that sounds great, Paul, but didn't Israel have similar promises? And look at them now. So how can I trust these promises? when God made similar covenant promises to Israel and Israel's not doing so good. And so he's got to explain what's going on. So in Romans 11, um, he says a bunch of things, but I want to just get to one thing here. Um, Hold on. Or is it 10? Give me one second here. They pursued it as if it was by, Oh, there it is. It's 11. Okay. Um, Five and six. Well, let's just start with one. Let's read one to Thirty seconds. Here we go. I asked then. I asked then. Has God rejected His people? By no means. 
For I myself am an Israelite. Case in point, number one Israelite right here. A descendant of Abraham, member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people and he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left. They seek my life. And what is the Lord's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it's written, God gave them the spirit of stupor. Um, where, am I, where am I looking for? They pursued it as if it was by works. It's trying to establish their own righteousness. Is it in 10 or am I missing it? I thought it was right there. Um, hold on. Hold on. I think it is 10 and I'm being an idiot. Um, where is it? They, they stump. Okay, hold on. It's here. I just got to find it. Um, yes, what is that? Where? 10-3. Thank you, Linda. Okay. There we go. Here we go. Sorry. Sorry. This is, this is the, I went to the wrong text, Greg. I'm sorry. But it, it's a big question. It's the end of the time. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God for them is that they might be saved. I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You can have really passionate worship services and tears running down your face. And if it's not in accordance with truth, it's worthless. You need both. You don't want dead, emotionless orthodoxy. But zeal for truth without knowledge is equally bad. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The short answer is reading the law, your conclusion should be, yeah, I can't do that. And the Jews read the law, and at least the Jews who rejected Jesus are like, okay, I think, I think with a spot of good weather and coming at this just right, I think, I think that's doable. I think that's doable. It's part of the reason why Paul insists his gospel upholds the law, because he doesn't have to dwarf it and dumb it down. He can have it being perfect and beautiful and majestic and completely unattainable, because that's what it is. But no, the Jews were seeking to establish their own righteousness did not submit to God's righteousness. Anyway, I can stick around for a few more minutes, but that's it. God bless, Godspeed, good day, happy Reformation Day.